Kevin mentioned the scripture this morning will be from the book of Hosea, chapter 4, the first six verses. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants in the land. There is no truth, truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restra restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will, will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall, you shall stumble in the day, the prophet shall also stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. They're difficult words to hear, aren't they? We're going to, as you can tell, we switched things up a little bit this morning. Sorry if it threw you for a loop. This uh, new sermon series, let me get a drink of water real quick. This new uh, sermon series is going to be covering the minor prophets, basically the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Um, if I took a survey today and asked how many of you have read all 12 of those books within the past two years, I'm probably safe to say less than 30%. Um, these, uh, these books are not often studied, they're not often taught, they're not often uh, preached from. Um, why, I don't know. But I, for one, have been one of those people who haven't read them that much. I'll be honest. I wanted to challenge myself uh, a little bit and get into these, these books that I haven't read for years um, and find the lessons that we can apply, that we can use to transform our lives and our thinking. Um, I want to start off this morning, um, and uh, as Kip said, welcome Chris and Morgan uh, into the family. They uh, were baptized last Monday night. Uh, it was a joyous evening, uh, to say the least, um, and it was a great start to the week. And I know um, for the McGee family, uh, they had had a, a very difficult start to the week, um, but that made things uh, much better. Um, so please continue to keep uh, Morgan and Chris in your prayers. Um, and I'm glad to be back with you. Uh, I flew down to Atlanta for a short trip, uh, but believe me, I missed each and every one of you. Uh, and if you don't believe me, just pick up a bulletin note this week and you will uh, understand why um, I, I missed you guys so much. So this morning, uh, again, we're going to uh, get into the uh, minor prophets. Now, not many people know why exactly they're called the minor prophets. If I asked you, many of you may think that, well, it's because they're less important than the other prophets that are referred to as the major prophets, right? Isaiah, Daniel is kind of on the border of major and minor prophets, but that's not really what it's talking about. It has nothing to do with significance. The minor prophets are, are labeled as such, uh, because of their length, because they're very short books, they're very short reads. And with that, 
they are easy and fast to read. Okay, the book of Hosea takes about 45 minutes if you're uninterrupted and you're focused on reading. It'll take you about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on your read speed, to get through it quickly. So I encourage you after our lesson this morning, either today or throughout this week, uh, pick up Hosea and read through it completely and kind of take what we're talking about this morning and find it in the scripture uh, as you're going through it. Now, next week, we're going to cover Joel. Joel's three chapters, you can read it a lot between now and then, all right? You could read it in commercial breaks during the Bengals game if you wanted to, or during the Bengals game, because I have a feeling it's going to be like a giant commercial break. <laughs> Bengals and Browns, it's going to be a field goal kicking extravaganza, so I hope you're, hope you're ready for that. So, um, also, if you're using the Bible app, okay, I found... Something new, it's, not, it's probably not new, I just found it. But if you're using the Bible app, within the Bible app, there's actually a reading plan that I put in our event for today that you can turn on, and basically it'll take you through the Minor Prophets. It'll take you through it in 25 days if you stick to the plan, but you can just use it, if you will, to, to just guide you through the Minor Prophets as we're going through the series. So this week, I think it leads up, if you started reading Hosea today, that you would be done with Hosea by Friday, and then Joel would be on Saturday. All right, so if you wanted to follow that plan, you could do that. Um, it's in the Bible app, and you can um, start that. Um, all right, so uh, why I want everybody to read the book before the lesson each week, is because that there is a lot going on in the books. There is a big picture, and so if you get the big picture of each of the books when you come in on Sunday morning as we gather together, um, it'll help uh, kind of get a better understanding. Hosea is uh, 14 chapters, I think it is, uh, and so we're not covering all of those. I'm not going to read all of that today, um, and that's why I've kind of bumped the scripture reading up a little bit, because uh, it kind of sets the scene. Each scripture reading uh, throughout the sermon series is going to kind of set the mood of the book, if you will. Um, and uh, I also want to encourage the reading because of just how few people have really read through the Minor Prophets. In fact, uh, like I said before, they're often ignored. Imagine uh, when you get to heaven, if you run into Joel or Amos or Haggai uh, or Obadiah up there, Haggai walks up and says, hey, I'm Haggai. How'd you like my book? <laughs> that might be an awkward, awkward conversation, right? So these are definitely things that we need to be familiar with. Uh, there are a lot of truth in these books, uh, major truths from Minor Prophets. I named the series Minor Prophets, Major Prophets, spelled differently. Huh? <laughs> the prophet Hosea is where we begin this week. Hosea is quite a disturbing book, uh, terrifying but beautiful at the same time. And the verses that uh, Matt just read uh, are an example of some of just the disturbing things that you learn about God in Hosea. But it is a good book. It is a fantastic read, even though it is a little bit disturbing. Um, and if I surveyed all of you, as I did my wife, and asked you to name one thing about the book of Hosea, most of you would probably recount that God made Hosea marry a prostitute. And you'd likely remember her name, Gomer, because why wouldn't you remember that name? I remember it because it's goofy and it reminds me of the Andy Griffith show. But God asked his chosen prophet 
to marry a prostitute. That's kind of disturbing, isn't it? God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute, so Hosea does as he was told and marries Gomer. But why does God make Hosea do this? Before we get into that, I want to talk about the background and the setting of the book of Hosea. Just over 900 years before the birth of Jesus, Solomon's son Rehoboam caused the nation of Israel to be split in two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Not one kingdom, not one strong nation anymore. There is now north and south. The kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, is where Jerusalem was, and the north was Israel, where Galilee was. For the most part, Judah remained faithful, with good kings here and there from time to time. But on the other flip side, on the flip side, Israel trended towards apostasy constantly from the beginning of the split until the end. They uh, they were very apostate, and something uh, apostasy is something we covered last week as we wrapped up that sermon series. But they tended to be unfaithful to God, and they had some really uh, horrible, wicked, no good, very bad kings. About 200 years after the split, Israel was destroyed by Assyria. And the Israelites were put into slavery. And Hosea prophesied in the years leading up to that destruction. That's a hard time to live in. There's a split in the country. You've got evil kings. You've got unfaithful people. And you are God's chosen prophet in the land. Not easy for Hosea to live in this time. Not only do you have to live in unfaithful Israel, but you have to go tell them that God is going to come against you in judgment. And oh, by the way, you got to marry a prostitute. The judgment part, God coming against them in judgment, is a common theme throughout most of the minor prophets and the major prophets really for that as well. God's wrath is not a fluffy thing to talk about, is it? It's not something that we go to our co-workers or our friends and family and say, hey, did you know how wrathful and vengeful and angry God can be? No, we focus on the happy stuff, the fluffy stuff of God's grace and mercy and love. And God has all of those things. He is all of those things. We tend to want to remove the wrath and the anger and the judgment from Scripture. We want, to, we want to ignore that and focus on the grace and the mercy and the love, which, again, he has all of those things. But unless you understand God's wrath, God's judgment and anger, and yes, even in some cases, his hatred for sin and for sinners. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Unless you understand that, unless we talk about these things, then how can we talk about how surprising, how shocking, how wonderful it is that God still loves us, that God still provides mercy to us, that God still forgives us? How scandalous that is for a holy one to do that. Without understanding his wrath and anger, we can never fully grasp the scope of his forgiveness that he has provided through us, to us through Jesus Christ. And with that said, 
Let's get into Hosea. Hosea can be broken down really into two sections. The first section is a more biographical section of Hosea and his life. The first part, which is uh, chapters 1 through 3, focuses on Hosea's marriage to Gomer. Uh, So he was told to go and marry. The scripture says in chapter 1, verse 2, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Three times God uses the word whoredom, or whore, or prostitute. And Hosea does it. And he marries Gomer. There were three children mentioned. The first was a son. His name was Jezreel. God said to name him Jezreel because he is coming. He, God, is coming in judgment. And this name was to indicate that. The second child, a daughter, was Lurahama. I probably butchered that, but hopefully I was close. Now the scripture may not actually say that. Your Bibles may call her no mercy. That's what Lurahama says translates out to. God says in chapter 1, verse 6, to name her this way, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. I will show my people no mercy. In fact, the word mercy may not be the best word for this. It's one of the words that can describe the Hebrew word that's used, but the idea is that the affection, the love, and the compassion that a parent has for their child was no longer going to be there. Could you imagine being a young girl with a prophet as a dad and a prostitute as a mom, which, by the way, Hosea was probably not No Mercy's dad. If you look closely at the scripture, if you look at Jezreel, When Jezreel is born, a few verses prior to No Mercy, it says that Gomer bore him a son. But with Lorama, or with No Mercy, and with the next child, it says she conceived and bore a son. Remember, Gomer's a prostitute. Remember who she is. And remember, God told Hosea to go marry a, a prostitute and have children of whoredom meaning they were the result of her being a prostitute. Let that set in for a second. Imagine being this young girl and having a name like no mercy or no love or basically my parents don't love me. Why? Why give her that name? Because God is saying to his people that they will not that they will not be loved as a father is to love their child. They will not be shown mercy by him. Now the third child is named not my people or not my kid. Interesting family, huh? Prophet, dad, prostitute, mom, and you got three kids. God's judgment, no mercy, and not my people or not my child. You think Thanksgiving's awkward at your house? Why would God have Hosea do this? What a heartbreaking situation for this prophet to be in. To have to rear this family and deal with this. What a terrible situation to have a wife like Gomer who would go around sleeping with other people. 
having kids by other men and not one of them is, and by the way, one of them is named not my people or not my kid. Why would God do this? So that Israel would look at Hosea's family and think, wow, that's horrible. That's awful. Do you see what that woman is doing to that man who loves her, who takes care of her, who provides for her? She still goes out and is a prostitute. I can't believe Hosea puts up with Gomer. It's disgusting how Gomer does that to Hosea, runs around on him. God did this so that Hosea could then say, you see how she makes me feel? That's how you make me feel. He spent his entire ministry, his entire earthly life, teaching people that, see my life? This is how you make God feel. You are treating God like my wife treats me, running around on me. And as I've named my three children in this way, take a lesson from these things. Then at some point, whether Hosea puts her away or some other reason we're not aware of, Hosea and Gomer part ways. Again, this illustrates that God gives all these blessings to His people. And instead of using them to bring glory to Him and returning these things back to Him in gracious thanksgiving, they gave it to idols. They turned to Baal. They thanked Baal for the things that they were receiving in their life, knowing full well that God was providing it to them because they were familiar with the Scriptures. They were familiar with their heritage. They turned to a false god and thanked him for the things that they have, just like an adulterous wife turns from her husband. So at some point, Hosea and Gomer separate. Then she finds herself for sale. And God says to Hosea, go, go and love her again. And Hosea goes and redeems her and buys her back, indicating that God would bring his people back. That he would love them again. That he would show them mercy again. That although he said, you're not going to be my people anymore, now you will be my people again. That's pretty amazing, right? It's shocking. It's confusing. But you have to understand the shocking nature of this. The adulterous wife, the prostitute, according to the law, she deserves what she had. She deserves to not have a husband anymore. She deserves, according to the law, to be stoned to death. She deserved not being his wife, not being his people. But then, like God, he brought her back. Hosea spends his life in this world as an object lesson. And his words then share the truth. So that he can be preaching all along, be faithful to the Lord, because you have been unfaithful to the Lord. This is how he feels. This is what he's going to do. Here is his judgment and his wrath, but on the other side, here is his mercy and grace and his love. God uses Hosea as a living object lesson. All throughout this book, we see these metaphors. The second part covers the numerous sins and transgressions of Israel and referred to uh, which is also referred to as Ephraim. Uh, which was the main tribe that was ruling over the northern kingdom. Oftentimes you may see Ephraim and Israel used intermittently uh, as you read throughout the book. Just know that Ephraim also is referring to Israel. 
So the second part uh, talks of God's ensuing wrath, but also his love and his mercy. And these metaphors of, of an adulterous wife, etc., these are uh, used uh, throughout uh, Hosea, the second part there. And we see God refer to Israel also as a stubborn heifer, a silly dove that keeps flying back and forth between Egypt and Assyria. Uh, he refers to them as a worthless half-baked cake. That sounds terrible. I want a whole-baked cake. A wild donkey looking for a mate. God warns them that judgment is coming. Hosea chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Go ahead and turn over there. We're going to be pushing through some verses fairly quickly here. So either try to keep up in your Bible. Don't tear your pages or watch up on the stream. Starting verse 11. The prophet of Israel will be crushed and broken by my judgment. Because they are determined to worship idols. I will destroy Israel as a moth consumes wool. I will make Judah as weak as rotten wood. Then over in chapter 10, verse 2, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. When he says that they must bear their guilt, he means that they must be punished. For what they've done. God says punishment is coming. Judgment is coming. And did they deserve it? Yeah. Absolutely they did. So that makes it all the more stunning and awesome that God said, I'm not done with you yet. I want to redeem my people. I want to bring them back to myself. I still love you. I still have a plan for you. Now, of course, now, because we have the fullness of Scripture, we have the fulfillment of the law and prophets in our hands this morning. We understand that plan now. We can look at that and understand, okay, we know the big picture. We know what God had planned. We know that God was using Israel for His purposes, but not only for their benefit. He was also doing it for the benefit of the entire world, all of mankind. God had a plan to prosper Israel, not harm them. They were doing that themselves. Because God was going to bring about the Messiah through them, not just to save Israel, but to save all of mankind. And that's what this story is all about. God wasn't going to completely wipe them off the map because He still determined to fulfill His promise that a seed of Abraham uh, would be a blessing for all mankind. But God continued to whittle them down into judgment until they were but a remnant before His Son came. Again, we see all these reference and references and metaphors to un, unfaithfulness, this, the stubborn heifer, the doves, the adulterous wife, etc. But then we see God say, I will judge you, I will punish you. But chapter 11 holds something else for us that I love and I want to focus our attention on this morning. Turn over to Hosea chapter 11. We're going to spend the bulk of the rest of our time there this morning. Here in chapter 11, God describes Israel as a wayward, rebellious, and disobedient child. And I want to emphasize what the law was. The law stated that if a child was disobedient, that it was continuously wayward, that the parent had every right, and the child deserved this according to the law, to be taken to the city gates and stoned. And it was up to the parent whether it was stoned to death. Verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him 
and out of Egypt I called my son. Now in, con- in context, he's talking about his children, the Israelites. And when you look over at Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, we see that this verse is applied to Jesus. Jesus is the faithful Israel. He is the faithful son who also was called out of Egypt as a child. And just like the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness for 40 days, Jesus did the same. Do you see the parallel between the unfaithful Israel that we read about in Hosea and the faithful son, Jesus, who did completely the opposite of what Israel did? The Lord says, Israel was my son. I brought them up out of Egypt and I loved them. Verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. He was my child. I brought him up out of Egypt. He was my own. I made a covenant with him. I loved him. The more I called to him, the more I said, be my son, be my child, be my people. The more I said that, the more I called, the further he went away. The more I gave, the more he offered to idols, the more disobedient and disobedient he became. Verse 3, yet I was Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. You see the imagery of the father and son there, of a child and a father. I taught him how to walk. I cared for him. I provided for him. I loved him. It was my kid. I loved him. They did not know that I healed them. The idea here is that they didn't care. They didn't care that all these things came from me, God. They didn't care that I loved them, that I helped them how to walk, that I cared for them, that I protected them, that I gave them everything. Instead, the more I called to them, the more they strayed. Verse 4, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Everything I did for them, from the law to the prophets, I did for their own good. Feeding them, providing for them, protecting them, loving them, and they didn't care. Can you hear and feel and see the emotion of God here? I want us to capture that today. God's heart is torn to pieces. The way that you'd be torn to pieces as a faithful husband whose wife has been unfaithful. Or or a loving parent whose child disobeys repeatedly. You would be broken. And God's heart is broken and he's angry. He's saying, you deserve punishment. You deserve punishment. To be stoned. You deserve to be put to death. You deserve to lose everything that I've given you. If this were a real child and parent, under the law of Moses, again, they'd have every right and even the responsibility to take their child to the, to the city gates and stone them even unto death. And that's really what Israel deserves as well. An unfaithful wife deserved to be put to death under the law, but look at the mercy of God and His patience. Let's continue here in verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. They were determined to worship idols. 
Read verse 6 here. Listen to these words. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. That's really strong visual wording that God gives. The bars of gates, if you're not familiar with how city gates worked back then, these large gates came together and a large bar would be placed on them to keep people from coming in. You've seen it in Monty Python or, or those other movies, you know, medieval movies, the same kind of concept. But God says that their swords shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates. Sorry about that. Uh, judgment, basically, is coming. Let's read verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up. What God's saying here is He's saying, you say that you're My people. You say that you worship Me, but you don't. You are determined. You are bent on turning away from Me, forsaking Me, and I say, enough is enough. Now, listen to the transition. You can feel it. You can hear it in the text here. Listen. Verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? You go back. Let's just go back here. My people are bent on turning away from me, although they call out. And in verse 6, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? This is what you deserve, and this, in many ways, is what's coming because of your unfaithfulness. But how can I give you up? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim are the cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, you are my people, my children, my wife. We did so much. We had a covenant. I brought you out of Egypt. I helped you learn to walk. I cared for you. I protected you. I provided for you. And judgment is coming upon you because of that. But how can I treat you like everyone else? Isn't that interesting? When God makes a covenant with a people, they're his special people. He feels differently towards them than others. He treats them differently. When we look at the language here of of Hosea, and especially here in Hosea chapter 11, we see how his heart is broken. I've pleaded with you. I've called you, desired your love in return. I've loved you so very much, and this, this is how you treated me over and over and over again. I've pleaded with you, come home. Stop being unfaithful, but you are determined to be unfaithful. But I love you. Let's continue in verse 8. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Look at the contrast there. Compassion, warm and tender. Then here in verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. Burning anger and warm compassion. God has both. Verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come 
in wrath. I am God and not a man. He's saying I'm not controlled by my emotions. I'm not controlled by emotions. It's it's amazing to know that God even has these emotions, right? But better still to know that He's not controlled by them. That His emotions are subject to His will. And He'll determine who will receive mercy and who will receive justice and wrath. I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall go after the Lord. In other words, I, will, I won't completely destroy them, but they will be judged. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves, there's the doves, from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Now I think there's part of this that is fulfilled after the captivity uh, of Assyria and they come back home. But even more so, the other part will be fulfilled when the Lion of Judah roars and the faithful come home. The Lord says, I will protect and preserve a remnant because I still have a plan for you. Verse 12, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. A couple of things before we close. We need to put some application to this, right? We are not Old Testament Israel. Okay? While we fit into this somewhere... This is not our story. We are not Gomer. We are not the sons that were brought up out of Egypt. But there is some application here. And we need to recognize that Romans 3, verses 25 through 26, says this. Who, um, let's see. Yeah, talking about Jesus being our appropriation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because, here it is, in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, that is, the time of Jesus, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I hope this morning that you've seen through Hosea's words, well, the Lord's words through Hosea, how God's heart is torn in half. That on one hand, God is a God of justice and wrath and anger, but on the other hand, He is a God of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mercy, etc. But how can God, if He is a holy and just God, how can He say, that's okay, I'm not going to punish you, That's okay, I'll just overlook these things. He couldn't do that. He can't do that. Judgment had to come. But God at the same time wants to have mercy, not just on Israel, but on all of mankind. So in the cross, you have two beams that come together. The first beam is a beam of justice. And the justifying nature of God is the other. And they come together. It's where the wrath and the compassion of God meet. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about that. The Lord poured out His anger and His wrath on Jesus. The only faithful one, the only perfect one, the only spotless Lamb to be the substitute, not just for Israel, but for all of mankind. 
And so that God could be both just, that is to pour out the just punishment for sin, and the justifier, that means to be made right in His sight, for the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. And that's what He did through Jesus. That's where His wrath and compassion meet. I also want us to understand this. This story that we talk about here in Hosea is a story of faithfulness. God preserved Israel because he had a plan to bring about the Messiah. But he's come. He's here. And has been the final sacrifice for sin. And let us take an important lesson from Israel. This is why these things are important to study. Because we have an example in Israel that we should learn from. Folks, there is not another sacrifice coming. There is no more sacrifices. The sacrifices are done. There's not another one coming. There's not another Messiah that's going to come someday. We can't just say, well, let's just hold on. Maybe he'll send another Savior. He's already come. Listen to the Hebrew writer. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10 where we spent... Uh, our last series, the verses just after where we focused in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I repay, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you hear the words throughout the Hebrew writer's writing here? Outraged, the Spirit of grace, trampled underfoot the Son of God. Vengeance is mine. The Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. God is a loving and merciful and just God. If, if, You come to him through Christ. God says, even though you've been unfaithful to me, Israel, like an unfaithful wife, like a half-baked cake or a stubborn heifer, I'll continue to hold on. I will continue to persevere and, and to preserve a remnant of you so that I can bring about the plan that I've had since before the beginning of time. So I could bring about a Savior, not just for the remnant's salvation, not just for Israel's salvation, but for the entire world. But God saved the remnant, right? He did that. He did that through Jesus as well. Jesus died for all, Israel and the rest of mankind. God was faithful to his people and the remnant who were also faithful back to him and received Christ. They were brought into the kingdom. But in Christ's death, the first covenant was finished and completed. And Jesus established a new covenant in his blood to bring in a new people, a new covenant, a new kingdom, a new citizenship. And that's us, his church. We're the new bride. We are God's chosen people. 
We're God's children, made up of every tribe, every nation, and every tongue under heaven. We're a kingdom that is spread out through this world. And the question is, though, will we learn from Israel's mistakes? Will we be an unfaithful bride, or will we be faithful to the one who sanctified us? Will we be faithful to our Lord, because there's not another sacrifice coming? There is but one sacrifice offered for all time. And once Jesus offered himself as that sacrifice, you know what he did? He went up and sat at the right hand of God. Because it was finished. So cleanse yourself in the blood of the Lamb. Be washed by His blood. Become a part of His covenant people and be faithful to Him. Be the faithful bride, the obedient child, the smart dove that flies where it's supposed to. Be a fully baked cake. Don't be a stubborn heifer. God loves you. He wants to give mercy to you. Our God is a God who loves. Our God is a God who let His heart be torn and broken century after century so that He could create a new covenant people. And we are that people. So let's be faithful to our Lord. If you haven't been washed in the blood of the Lamb, if you haven't been saved, if you haven't joined the covenant people, then what are you waiting for? Come and take your seat at the table because the banquet is waiting. And once you come... Let us all walk together in faithfulness. Let us not neglect one another, abandon one another, but come together and walk in faithfulness to the one who blesses us, who protects us, who cares for us. If we can help you do that in any way this morning, won't you come while we stand and sing? There is hope.